to Ephesians, okay? The book. Verse 15. We've moved now from the eulogizing praise to the Eucharistic prayer. When Paul says in verse 16, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, the word is Eucharist. And that's why I call it the Eucharistic prayer. For this reason, and as it would imply, all that has gone into the benediction with a beat is the foundation for the prayer that Paul is about to pray. For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people and all his saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Do you get the sense of the earnestness and the persistence? Remembering you in my prayers. Now, you know, it's, it's, I have, ever since I've heard about your faith, would imply that Paul doesn't know them really well. He doesn't know them necessarily personally. And he has, if you read Acts 18 through 20, you get a sense of how Paul was in and out of Ephesus. At one point, almost three years, I guess, of ministry there. But uh, oftentimes, other people carrying the ball, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and others. I love the plurality of the pastoral gifts in the body of Christ. That it's not limited to, it's not a pastor-centered one or two people that carry the ministry ball, as it were. Uh, and, and Paul is in the thick of this ongoing spiraling intensification of the gospel and evangelism in Ephesus. But ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, but that is both important, isn't it? Faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, the love for all his saints, uh, both the vertical and the horizontal, if you want to use that kind of diagrammatical thinking. Uh, faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking a persistence here. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit. Now again, that triune God emphasis. Some people say, well, you know, the Trinity is never talked about specifically in Scripture. Well, the word Trinity isn't, but the reality of the triune God is everywhere spoken. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Paul is going to teach us how to pray. There's a couple of things now in the next few minutes in this passage that I, I kind of want us to think about. I want to think it's about prayer and spirituality and power. Those are three things that I think kind of surface in this Eucharistic uh, prayer that Paul gives, this Thanksgiving prayer. In Luke chapter 11... Jesus is asked, and if you don't mind turning there with me, this will probably go faster. I love the fact that you brought your Bibles. Last Sunday in New York, I'm encouraging people to bring their Bibles and track with me as I preach because they're basically sitting there without a Bible, listening to me. 
and they have not had the tradition of uh, an open Bible with the pen in hand, marking or taking notes. And I'm hoping that we can uh, kind of change the culture there so that they bring a Bible, that they bring their Bible, and uh, and that they follow along. In the second, uh, Jesus is asked, uh, Luke chapter 11, did I make that clear? Luke 11, 1. I didn't make that clear. I said Luke. Uh, First one, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, and what we have here is an abbreviation, an abbreviation of the Lord's Prayer which is kind of striking. I mean, the Lord's Prayer isn't that long. And this is an abbreviation of the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus tweeting on the subject of prayer. (laughs) It's within the number of characters. So he gives this very simple, which says a great deal about spirituality, I think. It is not through the eloquence or the, uh, the beauty of the rhetoric that we pray. In fact, that's dangerous. You put in all those religious cliches in a prayer that, that's really dangerous. That's obsequious piety. That's sacrilegious piety. That's sacrilege up. You know, we're really used to sacrilege down, profanity, and, and those things that are derogatory. But you can have just as easily sacrilege up, where these are empty words and it doesn't, um, it's really not in any way. Way, heartfelt or mind understood. He gives this example of prayer, which we know so well. And then he says, well, suppose you have a friend and you go out to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. And a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I've nothing to set before him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are in bed and I can't get up and give you anything. And I tell you, even it's just interesting, the story is so much longer than the advice on the prayer. As he builds this story, well, of course the person's going to get the bread. And of course the father is going to give the son a fish. But notice how this uh, segment ends in verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you this is what's surprising give you the Holy Spirit now this kind of is before as you know, before Pentecost it's before John 20 that you will be given the Holy Spirit and that's what made me go back to this Luke 11 because of the emphasis on the Spirit in Ephesians 1 Keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. This has a transformative effect on our prayer life if what we're praying for, for each one, is that we might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Not necessarily better health or a better 401k plan or a better this or a better that, but that we might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Just as Luke 11, Jesus says, the Father will give you the Spirit so that you might know him better. What a great bottom line for prayer. 
that come hell or high water, the purpose, the reason, the whole rationale is that we would know God better. I wish I would remember this more often in counseling people. That the end game for the event that one is moving through is that we might know the Lord better. Those of you who have been through the deep, dark, the deep, darkest valley of the shadow of death, and, and you know, it may be said too glibly now for me to make the point, but you do know God better having traversed that deepest, darkest valley. Uh, we don't need to get into the, you know, the who's to blame as to why you went through the valley or anything like that. It's just that the spirit of wisdom and revelation has led you through that deepest, darkest valley and you do, do know God better through it. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now before we look at this metaphor, this eyes of your heart, what I found pastorally is that there's, there's two dangers spiritually. There's those who kind of mimic spirituality ignorantly. And those who are cynically critical of spirituality. And a lot depends on your own personal history. As to whether or not you have become uh, focused on the hypocritical nature of spirituality and thus have become hypercritical. Now, this idea, mimicking ignorantly and cynically critical, has occurred to me in pastoring in San Diego because I would have very sophisticated people that had grown up in hyper-fundamentalist homes, having broken entirely from that, lived very worldly lives for a while, and then come back to Christ thoughtfully, heartfeltly, but they really had trouble expressing themselves spiritually because they sort of chalked it all up as chalked it all up as being hypocritical. And therefore they became hypercritical of any manifestation of spirituality. But they'd come back to Jesus. And I realized that pastorally was part of my challenge to sort of bring them back into the praise and prayer dynamic of worship where they could enter into praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and they could do that credibly with honesty that they could pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know the hope of our calling and the glorious inheritance that we have in God's people and that we'd have some understanding of the incomparable great power they could enter into that prayer life you don't want to mimic this ignorantly you don't want to just sort of mouth the words. You don't want to just enter into that benedictional beat just to enter into it. This is maybe one of the dangers of contemporary Christian music is that we just get into it without the theology that informs it and really understand how we're praising, how we're worshiping. I think we just want to be on guard both. Now, let me stop there and kind of get your input. Am I making sense on the hypocritical danger, the hypercritical danger of uh, sacrilege up 
or just rejecting spirituality entirely. Well, I'm a Christian. I know Christ. Um, really, any input from you on that? You see what I'm, I'm aiming for is that I guess it's, it's a spirit-led course between those two extremes of being hypocritical in our worship or hypercritical and turned off by it. I'd love, brothers and sisters, to enter into the praise and prayer that Paul illustrates here. You're talking about what we express, how free we are to express praise and prayer? Right. And I'm talking about the fact that some people feel very inhibited from doing that because they have seen a false representation of spirituality. And I'd like that to bring that to consciousness so it could be prayed over, prayed about, dealt with, so that you can enter into a genuine expression of spirituality. On the other hand, I'd like some people who kind of are glib with praising and praying, and at the drop of the hat, they're sounding spiritual. You can't get a word out of your mouth without them giving you the, the truism back, the cliche back. I'd like you to stop for a moment and think and be more sensitive as to how you express these very fundamental and important truths that you be careful with this. It's not don't be so glib with it. So don't be glib and don't be super critical. I mean, it, because this to me is really powerful spirituality that I don't want anybody to write off or be dismissive of. Yes. There are times where I think pointing that out, the contrast, is an avenue to try to draw us more into thinking. But I'm also struck by how, uh, at least in my life experience, living that out in community with believers as we talk together and thinking over this is where I find that being that informed. So, you know, I kind of listen yeah. to you and go, wow, that's an important consideration. <clears throat> but then look forward to being a stronger to get some of the and saying, how do we work that through? So I think we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper and you know, think about how does that play out in our lives? How can we encourage and support one another to do that? Because mm-hmm. I don't think it's just enough to sit here and kind of go, passively, yeah. I can think of times where I've probably been on both sides of that continuum, and I can visualize certain people that might, in my experience with them, fall on you know one or both sides of that continuum too. But as you've done this with pastoral care, what additional ways have have you seen that evolution start to bear fruit, or the aha moment? You know, I've, I've determined that I'm not in charge of the aha moment. Okay. <laughs> uh, I pray for the aha moment. Uh, but Tim, you remember, you listened to me preach for the longest time and got nothing out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then something clicked. And that happened on the first Sunday. Oh, no, no, it didn't. Yeah. Something clicked, and then you were tracking with me. And you told me, you told me, I listened to you and really 
bored and didn't get anything out of it. Oh, I was bored. Yeah, I was caught something. Yeah, he was he's processing. Well, it takes me a while to get the terminal and get it out. Okay. Okay. I'm just slow learning. But I do think there's a principle there. And it does strike me that exposure, you know, that, that this ongoing engagement. You know, one of the things that so impresses me about this portion of this chapter is Paul's earnestness, is the manner in which he prays for the believers, is the depth of his gratitude and thanksgiving and realization of their vulnerability. That just really, you know, registers because then I get it just automatically says, wow, do I feel that way, you know, about my brothers and sisters? And I as invested in that kind of prayer for the enlightenment, for the wisdom, for the revelation, I feel that more natural like the smell of the stem. But I was just like hit in the head with his care. For fellow and believers. Well, and the and we could start there, praying this way for those we love the most, because oftentimes we're going to do that. We could pray this way for our children. We could pray this way for one another. Uh, obviously, this is not a pastoral prayer. This is a believer's prayer. So all of us enter into this. I keep asking. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's interesting in this passage, eyes, heart, hand, feet, and head are all mentioned, which I think has a kind of an analogical driving point of the reality of and the concreteness of the incarnation, that we take these wonderful, powerful truths that should not be written off as abstract materializations. They come right down to a description that is uh, using the analogy of the human body. The body is maybe one of the chief metaphors in the book of Ephesians. Using this as a, an understanding of the reality of God answering these prayers. The eyes of your heart, that's such a cool metaphor that you really see it. See it from the, the inside, the deep inner self, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that the light would go on, in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, remember we said last night that we are to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And the hope of our calling, and I said last night that all of us are called, salvation, service, sacrifice, and simplicity. We're all called. There isn't a special category of called individuals. We're all called. We'll have different vocations, different callings. The congregation in itself will uh, sometimes designate various ones in order to fulfill, particularly with their gifts, teaching, pastoring, spiritual direction, and such. But we're all called. <coughs> the hope to which he's called you. Hope could be understood in various ways, just like riches could be, just like power could be. We're renegotiating all of these. We're redefining them, the hope and the riches and the power according to the gospel. So we can't just go off in any direction with these words. The hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. I'm moving forward in my notes so I don't miss something. Uh, I see the power that's represented here as pertinent to what Paul says in Philippians. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, so as to somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is resurrection power. Paul then uses a number of words for power. Uh, he uses dudamos, from which we get dynamic and dynamite. The word that we, from which we get energy is used here. Kind of piles on the rhetoric related to power. Does this have something to do with the weakness that the Ephesians felt? I think it does. It's incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. And then that surprising phrase, for the church which implies that the world is peripheral to the church, not the church peripheral to the world. Head over everything for the church. This uh, beleaguered minority group of Christian followers, the cosmos is oriented around them. Head over everything for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If you wanted to rewrite this prayer in different ways, I think in Romans 8, Paul makes very much the same point when he says that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Not nakedness, not famine, not death, and lists all these things. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. I think that's looking at this power concept just from a different angle. This is the power that keeps us. The power that will bring us into the resurrected life. Everything has been placed under his feet. Not yet, the author of Hebrews says, but it will be. So the question is, what does this power mean? How shall we understand power? Joel Olstein has a certain understanding of power. <laughs> And power evangelists, power of positive thinking, power of a prosperity gospel, power of health and wealth. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. That kind of power. Liberation theologians talk about power in the name of Jesus, giving power to the powerless so that they can uh, have political power, but I don't think that that's what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here. Some Christians leverage political power. I think some Christians would make us feel uh, guilty for not entering more into the political battle right now. Uh, I think that too is a different kind of power than Paul is talking about. What is the essence of Christ's power? Part of our understanding of our fall and what God did is to see the depth of our fall and the power of God 
you know, live in Christ within. So if the power is found in in the redemption, thus the power is found in the cross. The power then is found in the Christian's life that is marked by the cross. Because we're talking about the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of the suffering. Well, that's a very, very different kind of power than anything we see in the world. That kind of power corresponds to a certain kind of weakness. You know, Paul says when he speaks about the thorn in the flesh in Corinthians, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Kind of interesting that there is a weakness that comes from the carnal, sinful self. That weakness we want to overcome. The weakness that comes from sin. The weakness that comes from apathy. The weakness that comes from ignorance. The weakness that comes from disobedience. The weakness that comes from not having the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That kind of weakness we want to overcome. But then there is a weakness that comes in the Christian life because we are obedient. We are following Christ. We are obedient to his word and his will. And that's the weakness that comes because of the cross. That's the kind of weakness that uh, Jack Keith had in his leather recliner with his legs up reading Ephesians 1. Uh, and yet the power of Christ palpable in the womb, even as a frail body is deteriorating and withering away. And yet the, the power of Christ is, is manifest in that life. I think we all, sooner or later, end up on a cross. All of us do. Not to worry about whether or not you're going to have one. I think we all end up there if we're living in the sense of the gospel. So that uh, our deepest, darkest valley is like Christ's Gethsemane. And our points of weakness are there because of our obedience and faithfulness to God. Um, I was, this wasn't, you know, I, the South is a very honorific and ornamental culture. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, come from the South. So people are praised. And uh, powerful people are praised. And uh, I have great adjustment to that, being born in Buffalo and Chicago. And just, you can't be born in Buffalo and live in an ornamental, honorific culture. <laughs> but um, to illustrate this point, uh, a very famous churchman in Alabama was preaching on Philippians 2. And I was there along with more than a thousand people. Philippians 2. May this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, uh, who didn't uh, claim equality with God, but humbled himself, became human, became obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. That's the text. But before the text was uh, preached, he asked, uh, he started praising three outstanding pastors in the state of Alabama 
and went on for five minutes praising how great they are, how wonderful they are, and that one would become, from his prediction, one of the most significant North American theologians in the next 50 years. And he was going on and on like that, and actually asked the three to stand, and they were applauded over, and then we turned to the text. <laughs> May this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming human, taking on the form of a servant and being obedient even to the point of death on the cross. It's just the juxtaposition of what we were doing ecclesiastically with what the text was pointing to in reality. It was just, and I sat there among a thousand people. And frankly, I felt totally alone at drawing that observation. And I just the, you know, this wrestling with the two kinds of weaknesses and the nature of power. You remember that account of Kyle Lake, the pastor in Waco, Texas, at University Baptist Church, in the baptistry, with water up to his chest reaching for a live microphone about to baptize a new believer and he's electrocuted. That happened a couple of years ago. 800 worshipers, many of them students from Baylor, and they see this pastor die in the baptistry. What does that do in the sense of your concept of power and God's power? God's power to save. I sometimes think we have a false notion that somehow we are insulated from a world of germs, toxins, natural laws. Sometimes Christians, because they belong to God, rise above that. They have a power over that. Because God's going to uh, exercise his power on our behalf. But I don't think that that's what God's power in Christ speaks of. We're not insulated. We're not protective in that sense. We don't have kind of a, a, a disease-free existence because we belong to Christ. A cancer-free existence because we belong to Christ. You know when I fell ice skating? Remember, some of you were there. There was actually, um, I did get some feedback from the verse in Proverbs that said, pride comes before a fall. And I think Actually, there is that sort of spiritual thought that when something happens in your life, it's because you did something. And therefore, you're receiving the consequence of your action for that. Steve Beavis, my really great friend, uh, and I referred to him last night, I think. Um, when Steve came down with, was afflicted with uh, cancer, in Liberia, many of the Christians there thought that Steve must have done something wrong to have had the cancer. 
And so while maintaining spiritual leadership over the hospital at Elwa, while people were beginning to undercut his ministry because obviously Steve couldn't have the right ideas because he had cancer and God hadn't protected him from that. We've got a lot of screwy ideas about power and how it gets applied. And those, I think, need to be raised to the surface and we need to understand that this power of the cross manifests in wisdom and in a weakness that uh, represents the cross and that Christ is powerful to save, to raise. Now let me stop here. Any comments or questions? Probably have taken in a different direction than Kathy and then Jerry. Yeah, I want to take the vision about that because I really was in a different on this. The power questions that we think about power and perhaps our presumption about the use of power and purpose. Because I'm uh, curious about how how little we avail ourselves of the power to admit the and be liberated by the truth of my strength and faith purpose. So I see more, not that I don't think it's in my life, but in household and faith, a reticence to be humbled by the reality of the power that's available for us to avail ourselves of the power by being honest about our weakness. Let me give you another story uh, that may, uh, well, it's on a different vein. We received a new member last week. This young guy is in his early 30s and uh, works at one of the financial institutes in Manhattan. Lovely, wonderful Christian, just by vision. We're interviewing him on his walk with Christ. and um, He just is an exuberant Christian. Uh, not at all hung up about a very sophisticated, high-powered job that he has. And it just he takes care. He, he teaches our children in this church and all. And I just really impressed with David. So much impressed that I thought, well, I'll, I'll call his dad. Uh, so Monday morning, I, I called his dad in Sarasota, Florida, and said, well, you know, David came before us to become a new member. And I just wanted to let you know, as a fellow father, uh, how proud you should be of, of David. And, you know, I'm sure he appreciated that. And he said, did David tell you his story? I said, no, not, not in particular. Well, he said in sophomore year in high school, he almost died. He contracted a virus that impacted his heart, and he was truly disabled for 18 months. You'd never know it looking at David. He's a very vital kind of uh, very handsome guy. And, uh, and he said, he, uh, David's father's a pastor in Sarasota. And he said there was a kind of charismatic element in our church that felt it was very important to pray over David. And they prayed for healing. And David said that that night they prayed over him, he physically felt transformation, difference. And David's father said, Carl, said that from that point on, David began to pray. And he said, up until that point, we thought we might lose him. And I was remarking on the fact that David never seemed to hit any hiatus in his spiritual journey, the way he describes it, just one steady flow of commitment to Christ. And that's what Carl would say is the reason for that, because David's really seen the power of God in Christ. You know, I, I 
that power does exist, but we've got to check the superstitious, super spiritual nature of application of that power. That uh, the absence of God's power in the life of a person freeing them from cancer does not in any way render God powerless. Or and we have to accept that, the power of the cross in the midst of that, but also the power to say. So, uh, does that help? Can I ask you a question? Isn't the word authority also a, in some translations, used in a place of power? I mean, I, where he gave the disciples authority to go out and speak in his name, it also carried the power. Oh, it's the power of the word. That's right. right. Yeah, I don't well, the power of Jesus' name. Uh, you know, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, he said to the blind. He didn't pray for him. He just said, stand up and walk. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think, I don't know if you're minimizing Minimizing this, uh, but there is a great movement across the world today. God is doing amazing things in various countries, and it's an expression of His power who has that leads people to Christ uh, after they've seen miracles and so forth. What part does that play in our lives today? A great part. <laughs> okay. It has a wonderful uh, testimony to the expansion of the church. Yeah. But be very careful how that power is claimed. Noberto Priest was a young man in our congregation in Toronto dying from a brain tumor. Um, horrendous. Horrendous. The worst I have ever seen. Pus coming from out of, of all of the orifices as this tumor expanded and became infected. And... Uh, they turned away from me because I was counseling them and praying for them. We'd anointed uh, Norberto for healing. But his wife, Elena, felt that I didn't really believe he could be healed. She turned to the Pentecostal church and they came in and they prayed over and they stopped coming to our church for a time and Norberto died. And she was crushed because she really believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. To raise him, to, you know, heal him. But I'm the one who did the memorial service. And Elena turned to me in order to preach the resurrection at his service, which was now back in our church, and they were back in our church. So, this is the power that sustains us in that life and death situation. Does God in. Uh, Intervene in order to accomplish healing? Wow, sure, I believe that very strongly. But it is really the power, not so much the heal that's honored here, but the power of resurrection, which implies a death in order to get to the resurrection. Which implies the power of the cross. And he really is talking to believers who are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And that suffering is very much in accord with the continued exercising of God's power, I think, in their lives. Yes? Um, I've always been struck by uh, James Boyce after he was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. And he was able to get back to church once. And, the two, and they asked how they could pray. And he said, pray for healing, sure. 
but remember that the God who can heal me also could have prevented the cancer. Uh, and to be that helps balance the whole thing. And whether by life or by death, God is on. Yeah, he had a great testimony in his past. Well, the praise and the prayer. The eulogizing praise, the Eucharistic prayer. Again, as I said a few moments ago, the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The fullness of him fulfills everything in every way. Let's move into chapter 2. And we'll maybe move on quickly here so we see uh, chapter 2 in this in part. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now this is kind of a, a jolting uh, transition here in the letter without uh, chapter divisions and verse markers. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Isn't it interesting that the devil is described as the kingdom of the air? Uh, the de-incarnate evil being, the one that cannot be incarnated, the kingdom of the air, The ruler of the kingdom of the air, because he can't incarnate himself in human flesh the way God in Christ has done. The spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. The spirit of the kingdom of the ruler of the air. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, look at the parallel. In these two sections, the personal salvation and the social salvation, as we said last night, that this chapter on salvation is divided into two. Chapter two begins with a description of our personal death. You were dead in your transgressions and sins which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And then in verse 11, you have a description again of the way things were apart from Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So there's two... uh, Two things that are drawn our attention to. First, personally, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. And the second, in verse 11 and following, is that we are without hope and without God in the world. So both personally and socially. Personally, in our relationship with God, we are uh, as far removed as possible from Him. And two, we are estranged from one another. We are without hope and without God in the world. We don't have the covenants, speaking to the Gentiles here. We don't have the promises. We are estranged from God. There's the personal and the social dimension. But Paul is eager 
Now, in both cases, it was three chapters in Romans to describe what it meant to be dead in our transgressions and sins. And it's three chapters in Romans to talk about the ethnic divide between Jews and Gentiles. So here in Ephesians, it's being compressed into two or three verses instead of two or three chapters. You get a very concise description here. The redemptive turning point happens in verse 4 and in verse 13. The redemptive turning point, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us within the heavenly realm. So the depths of our depravity, dead in our transgressions and sins, are now contrasted with the height of this exaltation. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It doesn't get any better than this. And it's not that we will be seated. We are seated. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. All those spiritual blessings are operative now. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. This too, a phrase from chapter 1, the incomparable riches of his grace. So, the redemptive turning point happens in verse 4. And we are now raised up into the heavenly realms, although we were in the depths of depravity. And now the redemptive turning point in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, there's that sense of spatial distance that's covered. First from depravity to exaltation, and now here from alienation to solidarity. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Interesting, the strong redemptive analogy that's brought into the social dimensions of our salvation. That redemption and the way of the cross and the means by which God saves us is critical for overcoming the estrangement and the alienation and the separation that we feel among genders, among races, among people groups. For he himself is our peace. Now, Andrew Sullivan is a writer for the New York Times and headman editor of the New Republic, uh, trained at Harvard and Oxford, I believe, or Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, a brilliant guy. His solution to the hostility that ethnic groups and various religions feel, he says, is to scale down the rhetoric. He says you've got a choice now between religious fundamentalism and spiritual humility. And he advocates choosing spiritual humility. Read Jesus as a moral guide. Read Muhammad or whatever sage advice you might give. See this as a reflection on the nature of what it is to live together. So tone down the rhetoric. Kind of lower the wall of hostility. And try to get along. And he sees, you know, moderate Christians and, and, uh, and peaceable Muslims and... Uh, 
faithful Jews all could kind of tone down the rhetoric and they could agree to get along. And that's his advice, or, or this fundamentalism is going to kill us all, he suggests. But that's really not what Paul is suggesting here. He's not saying that we can kind of lower the wall of hostility. He's saying that the wall of hostility has been wiped out, wiped away. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Now the wall of hostility that Paul is specifically, concretely thinking about is the wall that separates the Gentiles from the Jews in the temple. A wall that was marked by death threats. For a Gentile to go beyond that wall was to invite uh, execution. We actually have those signs. John Stodd in his commentary refers to this. These signs that there's one in Turkey that's in a museum there that actually came from the temple wall that uh, promised, warned of death to the foreigner intruding beyond that wall. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through Christ, by which he put to death their hostility. The wall no longer exists because of Christ. The hostility that divides ethnicities or religions or genders or economic or politically ideological groups wall is to be flattened because of the peace of Christ, because of the blood of Christ. This speaks to me of both the personal and the social implications of the gospel. There is a sociological impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we tend to neglect, I think, because I think we, we concentrate on the first ten verses of this chapter and then neglect the sociological implications of what it means that that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. In fact, I sometimes think that politically we're still tending to the wall, trying to preserve the wall, a barrier to protect our morality. But it's actually that wall, that, that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, which I think is emblematic, paradigmatic for those walls that exist on many different levels between us. That, that wall in Christ has been broken down. The only way to deal with that hostility is through the peace of Christ. That makes us even more feel like a minority. Because the only way to negotiate that hostility is through the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The wall comes down because of his shed blood. So that means the voice and the proclamation and the means by which we feel true success is going to happen politically, economically, socially, is going to come through an explicit Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that really intrigues me. How do Christians explicitly speak of Christ today? How do we kind of, how do we, in a sense, bridge the gulf that uh, it makes sense, it's wise, 
to talk explicitly of Jesus Christ. When we find so much, I think, inclination to kind of talk around the subject in positive Christian terms, but not to speak explicitly of Jesus Christ. And the whole idea of, you know, we've just distanced ourselves in a culture away from any sense of human death in our transgressions and sins. I mean, do we really believe that uh, the, the sinful impasse between God and man is greater than AIDS, greater than cancer, greater than suicide, greater than these particular problems? And I kind of, I feel it's sort of a loss as to how to explain to the culture that they are dead in their transgressions and sins. And that they desperately need the redemption that's been provided in Christ. Compare uh, the movie Castaway, where Tom Hanks plays Chuck Nolan, a FedEx guy who goes down in the South Pacific. And the whole movie is all about survival. You remember the movie. And the things that wash up on shore are kind of a commentary on um, the uselessness of our material goods in a survival situation. Remember the pilot that um, is washes up on shore and, and Chuck Nolan builds a shallow grave and he stands before him and you expect maybe Nolan at that point is going to pray but he says, that's that. And it's all a flat land. It's, it's all just a matter of survival. And then after three years where he almost dies, but the raft is, that he's on is identified by a tanker by accident, and he comes home and all of the life has changed. His fiancée is married, and, and he ends up, the last picture in the movie is, is uh, Tom Hanks, Chuck Nolan, standing at, uh, in the panhandle of Texas at Four Corners, just as lost as as he was on the island. But it's been survival. And love, if there is love, is just the romantic thing that keeps you going. Now compare that to Robinson Crusoe, the novel, where Daniel Defoe pictures a guy lost at sea who lands up on shore. One of the possessions he has is a, uh, is a Bible still in the storage of the, of the ship that gets all broken up. And he starts reading the Bible and he comes upon this passage of, of reading for, of, of reading in Acts, of praying for repentance. Acts chapter 5, that you pray for repentance. Lord, give me repentance. And uh, Robinson Crusoe prays for repentance and he comes to the place of honestly admitting to himself that his salvation with God actually means more than being rescued from the island. And it's a powerful study between survival and salvation. And the reality of, uh, of being related to God means more to Robinson Crusoe than, uh, than simply physical survival. Crusoe, after three decades, has become not a, a primitive Neanderthal, as Tom Hanks did on the South Pacific Island. Instead, he's, he's building, he's built a community, uh, and uh, he is well established. 
All of that to say that salvation is the one that it, is the thing that enriches the life and establishes the life. But it's a wonderful contrast. But we're really in the castaway culture. It's just a matter of survival, of making it. How then do you speak of being dead in our transgressions and sin? Of being led by the ruler of the prince of this air? Uh, you see the dilemma. I guess the dilemma is on both fronts. The dilemma is on the personal salvation front. People being convinced of the separation between themselves and God as the fundamental problem of humanity. And then, the separation between races and ethnicities, between cultures, between economic categories, and all of that, that the fundamental problem of that alienation and estrangement lies in that depravity, that social alienation, and the solution from it for it lies in our redemption. That it's only in Christ is the dividing wall of hostility brought down. I didn't really ask a question, did I? But I, 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 I'm sure I've provoked some comments now. Um, the dividing wall that has been destroyed is among Christians, right? Christians of one country and another, or, or other kinds of traditions. In what way does it that, that's a good point of clarification. The divine wall specifically, concretely, in this passage, is that the gospel now can go to Gentiles. Those who were minus the blessing of the revelation of God have now been brought into that blessing. So no, there's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. Well, because of Christ, there is no longer that division. So Christ brings down that dividing wall of hostility. Right, it's only in Christ does that dividing wall come down. Okay. I've worked with Muslim people, and I've often said to people about who live in the Middle East, Palestine, and so forth, you know, what needs to happen is someone needs to, there, needs to ask forgiveness from the person, and that forgiveness needs to be given, and vice versa. And I said, that's, I mean, at some point, it's got to happen like that, or people are never going to get together there. Well, but they never will get together by asking each other for forgiveness. I mean, that's the tragedy. That's of the what, I was, what I was going to say about it is, though, that they, they had no basis for doing it. You know, they're there for revenge, not, not for getting one of those. I mean, I'm just kind of getting to what you're saying. It's only in Christ that this kind of thing could ever happen. And just ameliorating the situation or lowering the divine law of ability or supposedly becoming more humble about your concept of truth is not going to do it. It's not going to get us there. In fact, there's actually a boldness with the declaration of the only thing that's going to overcome the animosity between us, the estrangement and the alienation between us. And at that point, you almost feel a little bit like Joseph sharing his dream with his brothers. You know, so often in Scripture, in that Old Testament narrative, we think Joseph was a wise ally for sharing the dream. And that's just what the world thinks of us when we share this gospel. 
dividing wall of hostility is only going to come down in Jesus Christ. That's as ludicrous as Joseph sharing the dream that everybody's going to bow before him. Uh, and that's how the world responds. It sounds very arrogant on the part of the Christian to be saying what Paul is saying here. Yes? No, I, I, I think that the first ten verses have all to do with our relationship with God. And then this uh, wonderful, powerful, encouraging statement for we are God's work and should create in Christ Jesus to do good works. And then we get into that plane of human relationships, which is completely applicable to you at work, or to you at school, or to you and your extended family. This really is what is going to bring down that dividing wall of hostility. If, if I understand what you're saying, I don't know that I practically agree with that because it seems to me that he says all things have been made subject to Christ in in position. That's true, but in practice, it's like you said, the fulfillment of that has not yet to come. So I know in the truth of the wall of hostility having been removed is true. I can operate that way. But the moment I stand on that truth, the exercise of it can cause separation. And he said, for this sake, I came to separate a, a son from a father, a daughter from a mother. From. And so, can you help me understand? Yeah, you're understanding completely and you are... Uh, you are identifying the paradox. Yeah, it is a paradox. That which actually has come to bring about peace actually brings about a sword. Oh, you know. That which unites is also going to divide. And that's the isn't that the unique and peculiar nature of the truth? If this is indeed true, it has to be embraced. If it's rejected, then the opposite of its consequence is going to occur. Which which for me, yes, last night I asked a question about when you were talking about um, being truthful as a platform for speaking truth. And that was part of what I was wondering about because I read ahead in the Ephesians just saying, how do we say this? And, and being truthful uh, and, and, and to be able to proclaim the truth, I guess it's what you guys said uh, earlier, somebody else, I need the aha with God. And, and for, for me here, the, the, to proclaim the truth would be one wanting them to embrace the truth. But I can't necessarily celebrate that all the time. Well, and, and Paul himself, we believe, is under house arrest. We believe that Paul is under house arrest, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, a prisoner of Caesar. Paradox is interesting. Look at that tomorrow. But uh, Rome and the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but how is the peace of Rome achieved? It's achieved through conquest, through brutality, through conquering. And here Paul is talking about a, an achievable peace that can only come from the blood of Christ, <coughs> through the cross of Christ, through a life, the principle of the cross, my life, through yours. And that's the only way that really this 
the truth of the reality of the dividing wall of hostility coming down is only going to be witnessed to and verified by us by practicing the principle of the cross. My life for yours. And that's lived out in your school, that's lived out in the university, that's lived out in your family. People witness the power, the peaceable power of the cross of Christ. The power. Remember, we were talking about power. This is a unique power. It is the power that transforms a Norman Masawi. It is the power that gives a person like Jack Keith in his closing days a tremendous sense of confidence and a wherewithal. And that's the power. And that, that to me is a distinctively positive, humble, gentle, resilient, faithful power. So it's not sort of putting a moderator on me, on Christ. It's really allowing Christ to be fully alive. I've been lifted up, as it were, to the heavenly realms. And there's a sense of identity and security and confidence and courage that comes as a result of that. Uh, Building off of uh, Mr. Glass's comment, but I, I go to IU, and so I have a lot of non-Christian friends, and I feel like personally I don't have a wall of hostility, but because I don't have a wall of hostility, doesn't mean that they don't have a wall of hostility. And they, because if I say I'm a Christian, they automatically put me into a certain area, a certain category where I've not placed myself. They just that's what they know, so that's what they do. Um, and whereas my door is always open to speak about what, what I believe, their door is not open to speak about what they believe, and they don't want to cross that. So if my truthfulness can only go to a certain extent as far as they're willing to listen. If they want to listen and discuss, then I'm willing. I want to proclaim the truth. I'm willing to debate the way what I believe. And if you don't believe in God, I'll tell you why I do believe in God and why it has changed my life and why it's important to me. But, I mean, the wall the hostility and I guess the difference the way that we treat the world isn't so much that we should have a wall up. Our wall is gone. But it only goes, we can only go as far as the world is willing to listen. You can't knock down their walls with, you know, your Bible and you can start bashing. You listen to me right now. You know, well, you know, I've been really encouraged by reading a book uh, probably a little longer than most of you would like, but it's James Davison Hunter to change the world. And uh, let, let me just really briefly uh, describe this book to you. He's um, a Presbyterian who uh, attends faithfully a Presbyterian church and is a sociologist at the University of Virginia and has done a lot of work on the culture wars over the years. But his uh, concern is that Christians not be defined by what they are against, but rather by what they are for. And that the ideology of negation, which so many Christians seem to practice, I'm opposed to this culture because of this, because of that, because of this, because of that, rather than being known for the truthfulness, the, uh, the way of dealing with anger, the way of dealing with integrity with your life. Because even, Christina, when people aren't actually asking you what you believe in God, you are still bearing witness of the Christ life and life in you and how you operate, how you relate, how you talk, how you befriend. And Davidson Hunter is concerned, he says, the right, the left, and the neo-Anabaptists, they're all defined by the, what they are against. So the left-wing Christian community, the Jim Wallace types, 
They're opposed to the exploitation of the capitalistic system, to not a great deal of sensitivity for the poor, and they're opposed to that dynamic that's happening in America. The Christian right is concerned for uh, marriage and abortion and concerns over euthanasia and those kinds of issues, and they define themselves according to those categories. The new Anabaptist is just mad at everything because uh, they're counterculture exceedingly. He says, instead, what if we practice kind of the faithful presence of Christ, of the gospel? Not so much a political ideology, but a living for Christ, a faithful presence. You will not change culture, he says, by changing hearts and minds. That's been the thought, that we will change culture if we change hearts and minds. One person after another. But he says, it's not going to change culture. The culture is changed by the elite power structures. And do Christians want to become part of that elite power structure? He says, no, they don't. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll happen to be in that and come to Christ and they will have positions of influence. But he said the aspiration to gain power in order to control the culture is not something that Christians ought to be concerned to practice. But in their families and in their jobs and in their life and in their culture, practice the faithful presence of Jesus Christ. Start there and the impact will be real. James Davidson Hunter argues. Yeah, going off of what you're saying, um, I think it really all comes down to, you know, like Isaiah 43 says that he, he formed us for his glory. And Ephesians says to the praise of his glory. Um, and if we are to live by the Spirit in everything that we do and live as a Christian in love, um, in truthfulness, uh, he has already created, as it says in verse 10, good works for us to do. So if we are living by the Spirit, we will meet people or we will say something which invokes a certain response. And through that, I think we are to share You know, I think it's not up to us, it's up to Christ, who we put in our path and is up to us to obey, you know, the thing that he gives us. Yeah, it's not only the salvation, right? But it's like we've been, uh, we're his works of art. Created in Christ Jesus you see that's a much humbler and gentler and down to earth and I think realistic approach to bearing Christian witness rather than the crusading ideological approach it seems to feel like we've got to have the power in order to be effective I think we can be effective by the power of Christ which as we've said is the power of suffering which leads to resurrection because in order to be raised you have to die so it's a very different approach to the Christ and culture issue that Paul outlines here. Well, um, I have 11.20, but it feels like 12.20. <laughs> Some of you are, do you want to go longer? More questions? Well, let's take as a conclusion then this last paragraph, verse 19, up to chapter 3. Chapter 2 verse 19. Consequently, and I think that this consequently pulls in the personal salvation and the social salvation. The sociological view as well as the spiritual view as it were uh, of salvation. 
the relationship with God and the relationship with one another. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. How difficult it is for us sometimes to grasp that our primary citizenship is in heaven and not in America. You surely, I hope, would agree with me that what we worship is Christ, the living God, and not patriotism, not nationalism. And I think you'd agree with me that we come to the place of being the best U.S. citizen by being the most faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. There's a total of seven words that Paul uses, metaphors for the solidarity of the believing community, all with the root word for house embedded in it. So, David... Did he come up with all seven of those as a spiel of uh, theology? I, I kind of think that Paul probably thought long and hard about putting this together. And he really is our pastor poet at this point as he encompasses that term of, of household of faith. All of this is relational. There is no mention. Did you realize that there is no mention of a church building in the New Testament? No mention of facility. Of missionary of what? Of, there's no mention of a church building. Interesting, isn't it? These are a relational terms uh, built on the foundation. What's the foundation? People. Apostles, prophets, with Christ Jesus as being the load-bearing stone, not the corner date stone and not a capstone, but the load-bearing stone. And in him, the whole building, which is just as concrete as brick and mortar and steel and glass, it's just that real, this solidarity, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. It's this, it's this, it's this body of believers not the glory that is created in an architectural place of worship. This is the preciousness. This is the glory. This is the beauty. This is the trend. This is, it's this, uh, the solidarity of brothers and sisters in Christ that is to create the sort of the adrenaline rush that, um, that comes from the, the aesthetic of uh, the relational reality of the body of Christ. It's not architecture. Now, sometimes we try to create within architecture an expression that will help us sense something in the glory of the presence of God. Uh, and I'm all for aesthetics. But I think that that's somewhat misdirected because it's really supposed to be us. It's supposed to be people that provide that sense of 
the aesthetic sacred presence of God. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You and I are not alone. It shouldn't be a lonely. I know we often do. Uh, but this, we really do need to grasp and embrace the sense of community that we have in Christ. And, and then dig it out in some ways, practically and personally, stick to it. Uh, another good book, uh, David Getz, Death by Suburb. Uh, he writes out of his Wheaton, Illinois context, but he says, you know, for a while he and his wife just switched churches all the time, trying to find a church home that they felt comfortable with and finally they gave up and they stayed in their pathetic <laughs> they stayed in their top church but that's where they found brothers and sisters in Christ that's where they found God calling them to meet needs and uh, this is one thing on paper it's another thing in real life you've got to bring real life and paper together here by the power of the spirit of Christ not easy but that's what we're called to do. So we've looked at worship. We've looked at salvation. We've looked at worship from the angles of praise and prayer. We've looked at salvation, personal and social. Paul building a sense of identity of a believing community so that they are not beleaguered. They are not overly individualistic. They are not self-dependent. They are God-dependent in solidarity with the believing community. They're strong and resilient and faithful because of that identity. That's what he envisions here. And I'm, I find myself encouraged by that. The Christ letter. Giving us a foundation that uh, tomorrow we will address in the, in the service the issue of... And it, this timing looks good. I see all these posters about the mission conference coming well, you're going to get your first message, your missionary message, tomorrow. Uh, because this is where Paul outlines his sense of a theology of mission in chapter 3. So, shall we pray together? Lord God, thank you for this inspired word that is spoken into our life and into ECC, into Bloomington, uh, into the larger world that we live in. I do thank you for these sisters and brothers in Christ. May you apply this word by the power of your spirit. And we do give you thanks. May the God of hope fill us with all peace and joy. And as we put our trust in you, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.